Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited to be with all of you this morning. We're uh, beginning a new series today on uh, the book of Micah. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be digging into this uh, very small, um, maybe often neglected book of the Bible. And uh, so I'm going to encourage you uh, over the next couple of weeks, if you're, if you're still um, using the old school Bibles, uh, paper Bible, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Um, uh, it, it's the literal U version. Um, uh, I encourage you to bring it along because we're going to actually, the way in which we're going to teach this series is going to work really well for taking notes in your Bible if, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, if you're not, then you'll still be able to follow along on the screen, no problem. Now, um, as we look at this book of the Bible, there are really kind of like um, uh, three verses that are kind of the, Micah's claim to fame, like three verses that have made their rounds in the world, and we're going to look at a couple of those just to start. So the first, first verse that really kind of drove me to this book, to look at this entire short book of seven chapters, um, well, it was actually because I was following someone on Instagram. It's a Christian design and t-shirt company and uh, called The Happy Givers, and uh, I really liked one of their designs, um, and, and it's something that they post often because they're trying to sell these shirts. Um, it's this one here. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty cool shirt. It says, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. It's a great shirt. It's a great uh, life motto. Um, and it comes from Micah chapter 6. So if you, if you have your Bibles, you can actually go to Micah, Micah chapter 6. Um, and specifically verse number 8, it says this. So what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's a great verse. It's a powerful verse. Um, scholars have referred to this verse as the golden rule of the Old Testament. Um, so it's one that's been picked up, and it makes a great meme nowadays, but it's been read and memorized. In fact, if you're going to memorize a verse, if, if that's something you do to kind of help you grow in your faith um, for this series, that's the verse to memorize. Phenomenal verse. What, is the God, what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Um, and in a lot of ways, that verse is, this verse is kind of the theme for everything we're going to talk about in this book. So that's one verse that's kind of made its rounds, and you maybe have, have seen or heard or you'll notice it in the future. The second verse is a little less familiar, but it's definitely made its rounds um, in some segments of Christianity, and it's been duplicated and even lived out in really kind of profound ways. It's found in Micah chapter 4. So Micah chapter 4, one of the books, uh, chapters in Micah, specifically verse number 3. It says this, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's this really beautiful picture of what does it look like for a nation that is so driven to war, like so much money, time, and investment is put into war. Not that nations do that anymore, but imagine a nation that would. And what if they took that energy and took their weapons even and made it into something that could actually help people live instead of kill people, right? So this, this has actually been used by a lot of artists and activists. This is the type of language that artists and activists, especially pacifists, just they love that. So um, there's been a lot of art exhibits. So this is one that's actually very similar based on this. All of these uh, shovels here, um, the, the metal part of them were hammered out of guns. So it's like taking this metaphor, this language, and like actually living it out and uh, taking something that was used for war, and now these shovels, after the art exhibit, they'd be used for planting trees. Um, very beautiful, powerful imagery. So the third verse, though, um, has its claim to fame. This one you probably have heard before. You've probably heard this verse 
You might not have realized it. In fact, if, if you know someone who only goes to church Christmas and Easter, they've probably heard this verse in Micah and they didn't even know it. And it's this one right here. It's in Micah chapter five, specifically verse number two. It says, but you, Bethlehem, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So this is the verse that caused the three wise men and the magi to go looking for this king, this Messiah in Bethlehem. And this is also the verse that the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is probably O Little Town of Bethlehem and not O Town of Bethlehem, right? This is this, because he's talking about how, how, how Bethlehem and this tribe is one of the smallest, but out of this tribe and out of this small community, the Messiah will come. So these are easily the most popular verses within the book, um, but what about the rest of them? What about the rest of the verses? And, and what do these verses specifically have to do, uh, what, how do we understand them in the context? If we, if we really understood the entire book of Micah, what, what kind of meaning or clarification would come from these passages, these verses? So that's what we're going to do in this series, and that's what we're going to do today. I hope to share with you some things that uh, you'll want to remember. That's my, my, my hope is. Um, might not happen, but my hope is that. And so on the back of your update, there is room to take notes. And I'd encourage you, if there's something that um, I say or something that God says to you um, while I happen to be talking, um, that you would uh, just write that down so you can remember. So let's talk about Micah for a second. Micah is found in a collection uh, known as the Minor Prophets. Um, it's not minor because they're inferior. It's minor because they're really short. So there's major prophets, and they are, they are some of the longer books of the Bible, and then there's these minor prophets. And Micah is pretty small. It only has seven chapters, and we're going to actually work through it uh, verse by verse. And it, it'll, I'm not exactly sure how long this series will take, but it's, it's going to be at least five weeks, um, and we'll just see how far we get into it. But these seven chapters in Micah, this smaller book, is divided into three prophetic speeches. So Micah is a prophet, which literally meant in the Hebrew, mouthpiece the mouthpiece of God. A prophet would speak for God. And so what we have in the book of Micah is a collection of three of his most, probably most common, maybe even popular speeches. I'm sure they're not everything he said. He, he probably did this for quite a while, probably full time. And so there's a lot of things that he said that we don't have. But, but his general message as a prophet was consolidated into three speeches. And those three speeches make up seven chapters of the book of Micah. And what we, have, what we don't have in Micah, though, this book, is that we have in many other books of the prophets is his story. So we're not given really a lot of context for who Micah was, why he was preaching, what was his, you know, was he married, did he have a home? Or, you know, we don't know a lot about Micah. So here's a little bit of just kind of the area around Micah when this is happening. So Micah lived during the time of Israel's kingdoms. And so here's a map of Israel. And of course, uh, when, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt from the south and moved in, I feel like a weather person. But when the Israel moved up here um, and they congregated in this area, uh, they eventually, this became their nation. But after uh, they, they had judges and then they had kings and they had three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. David was their favorite. Solomon was David's son. He did okay, but he wasn't as great. After Solomon, the nation divided into the southern kingdom and into the northern kingdom. Um, and there's a lot of sort of names and ways of referring to these kingdoms. And so uh, during this time of the kings, you had the prophets. And they would live in the northern kingdom. Some lived in the southern kingdom. 
and uh, they would challenge some of God's leadership. So, so there was three kinds of leaders during this time. Um, you had uh, priests, kings, and prophets. You might want to write this down. This is true throughout most of the Old Testament, especially during the times of the kings. But God would work in this world in the Old Testament through three types of leaders. This is significant um, for a lot of reasons, and we'll talk about this later, but these are roles that Jesus plays in the, when he comes. He comes as priest, he comes as king, he comes as prophet, okay? So three types of leaders, priests, kings, and prophets, and they all deal in some sort of like different currency of God, so to speak. So priests, they deal with the holiness of God. Priests would work in temples before that, the, the tabernacle, which was a tent version of the temple. And the whole idea of the temple was these rooms within rooms within rooms that we could eventually, in the holy of holies, channel God's holiness to earth because we need God's holiness, but God's holiness will kill us if we get too much of it. That's how powerful it is. That's the basis of like, that's the best way to understand holiness. Um, it, it'd be very similar to like uh, understanding uh, radiation and, and, and cancer. Sin is this cancer, and we need this radiation to heal us of it. But if we get too much, it will kill us as well. And so the temple is this way of sort of this apparatus to sort of bring God's holiness to earth and provide it to us in a way that can cure us but not kill us, which is God's big dilemma. How do I cure them without killing them? Because sin beats to death. So priests deal in holiness. Kings deal in the kingdom of God. This is the, the sort of the currency that they deal with God. Their job is they're anointed to build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is, once again, as you think about even projecting into the future as we talk about Jesus, you can see how this all plays out. And then finally, prophets, they deal in the word of God. So they receive from God word, message, speech, and they proclaim to the people what God has to say. Now, here's what they usually do. Prophets typically have a word for the kings and for the priests. So when the kings and the priests, these leaders of God, aren't doing what they should be doing, when they get off track, the prophet's job is to come and say, here's how you're screwing it up. So as you can imagine, prophets were really well-liked. <laughs> like, just generally, um, people thought they were great. Um, actually, uh, they weren't liked at all. Um, the only thing worse than someone telling you you're doing something wrong, do you know the only thing worse than someone telling you you're doing something wrong? Is when they're right. <laughs> and that's, that's the good prophets. They're telling you you're doing something wrong. They're absolutely right about it, and it's infuriating. Oh, the prophets hated it. So the prophets, um, the good prophets, they were not liked at all. So it wasn't uncommon for them to find themselves on the run. Oftentimes, a king didn't like their message, and so the king would then uh, send armies after them to kill them. John the Baptist, a prophet in the New Testament, he gets his head removed because he was a prophet, and the king, didn't, Herod, didn't like what he had to say. And so they really struggle with this. Jeremiah struggled with this quite a bit. He's one of the major prophets because his book is much bigger. And he says it like this. He says, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. I absolutely love this. this Jeremiah is talking about God's call on his life. Like God asked him to do something. And somewhere along the lines, Jeremiah was like, this is going to be, God called me. I'm set apart. I'm special. I'm going to be a leader. And now he actually does the work. And Jeremiah is like, you lied to me. You deceived me. I was overpowered. You overpowered me and prevailed. I didn't even have a choice in this matter. I, and here's why. Here's why you deceived me. I am ridiculed all day long. 
everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. He's like, God, that's all you've given me to say to people is violence and destruction. No one wants to hear that. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, he says, but, 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 if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word becomes in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. I cannot. I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. I don't want to say this, but I can't not say it. I have to say it. This is going to be a problem for Micah as well. I see a lot of people claim to be prophets. It's a very prominent position. In fact, it's not entirely uncommon in, in Middle Eastern cultures and in Israel even to this day where people kind of like claim to be prophets and sometimes in very political ways. And you'll see their billboards up along uh, posts and they're claiming to be some kind of Messiah or prophet. So a lot of people claim to be prophets. And Scripture teaches us how to tell between the good prophets and the bad prophets. One of the most basic ways is if you're a good prophet, if what you say comes true. So you're speaking for God, and if God is, knows what's going to happen, then what? But the problem with that is you, you only know that in hindsight. So we look at Micah, and Micah said, destruction is coming to Israel because you've really messed up, and destruction came to Israel. So we're like, okay, you got that right. And then he says, but don't worry, a Messiah is going to come someday out of the city of Bethlehem. And we look back and we're like, okay, you got that right. So you're in, Micah, you're good. You're not a false prophet. But when he's preaching this, there's impossible to know. So Micah offers a slightly different perspective. He seems to suggest, we'll look at this in a second. Uh, we'll look at this actually in future weeks. He seems to suggest that there's another way to know whether someone's a true prophet or, or a false prophet. And here's what he says. You're probably not a true prophet if you just tell people what they want to hear. If, if someone just tells you what you already want to hear, he's like, don't trust them. Because typically, God will call a prophet, set aside a prophet to be his mouthpiece because there's a problem that needs addressed. And there's some kind of hard word that needs to be said. And we're going to see this a lot in Micah, so not much today, but later. So today, I want to start with his first speech. And we're going to get about halfway through it. Um, his first speech makes up chapters 1 and 2. We're not going to get through the whole first speech today. And I, I say that because of this. His speeches follow, all three of them follow a very very good pattern. He starts out in this really dark place where he talks about all of the hell that's coming to earth because they messed up. And then the last part, just like right at the end of each speech, he's like, but don't worry, there's hope. So that's the speeches. We're only going to get through the first half. So we're not getting to hope today, guys. So <laughs> we're getting no hope. I just want to let you know that ahead of time. Now, I actually try to upswing it there at the end anyways. Uh, but not because we're at that part of the, in the passage. So um, uh, we're going to look at it. We know that these are individual speeches, just FYI, because they start with a very traditional Hebrew word. Um, they say, uh, hear you people or listen you people. He says it right here in verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you. And each speech starts with this introduction, this invitation to hear what God has to say. So let's jump to verse chapter 1 and we'll look at it. So the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So I want to pause right there. We now know what this entire book is going to be about, right in this little introductory paragraph. 
Samaria right here um, was the uh, capital uh, of, of, of Jerusalem and uh, of Israel, and, and Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so what he's saying is, I've got a vision regarding Samaria, and I've got a vision regarding Jerusalem, which is another way of saying I have, I have visions regarding the capitals of these two nations. So what he ultimately is going to say is, like, this, this prophecy is about these nations, but it's really not just about the nations, but it's about these capitals, which sort of suggests that this conversation isn't just about the nations, and it's not really just about the capitals, it's about what happens in capitals. In other words, this prophecy is going to be against the leaders of Israel, of both kingdoms. So it's like saying, like, I have a prophecy concerning D.C. And when I say that, Washington, D.C., there's a problem in Washington. You know that I don't mean the literal city. You know exactly what I mean. I'm referring to the leaders that are setting policy and leading our country, right? So that's what he's saying. I have a prophecy concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, these two nations. So that's what he's going to talk about. But look who he is addressing. Verse uh, verse 2. He says here, Hear you peoples, all of you, listen earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So he's, a, he, he's going to talk about these leaders, but what he's really addressing is the entire earth. He says, anyone who is alive should hear what I have to say. And this isn't by accident. Here's what we need to remember. God's people had a very specific role in Scripture. When God chose Abraham, the father of Israel's, the nation of Israel, to be the father of his people, when he told Abraham and when he told Sarah, I will bless you and you will have children and grandchildren and you will eventually become this great nation, what he said is the reason for that is that you, my blessing to you might eventually trickle down to all of the nations, that through you all nations will be blessed. So you... It's this idea. You have this whole earth, this whole earth who's being told to listen to this message. This earth, all nations would receive God's blessing from God's people. And, God would re- and God's people would receive God's blessing oftentimes through the leadership that God set aside, these priests and these prophets and these kings. So it looked like this. Here's a way that I want to try to explain it here. A simple paragraph. Imagine like a pyramid or a, like a mountain, which is a very biblical metaphor for how God works with God's people. You have this idea that like leaders uh, would receive a blessing from God and that would trickle down to Israel and that would trickle down to everyone else. And this like literally happened with Moses, if you think of it metaphorically. Moses goes up to the mountain, he receives something from God, he brings it down to the people, and then it's supposed to eventually influence all the nations around them as well. So this is how it's supposed to work. Um, if you're a priest, then you would, you would receive holiness from God, and it would spread out to the people and eventually influence all the nations. If you were a king, you would bring God's kingdom to earth, and it would obviously impact the kingdom of God and then eventually influence all the nations. And if you were a prophet, you would bring God's blessing in the form of God's word to earth, and then it would go to the people and, 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 and to all the nations. So here's why Micah is telling all of the earth to listen. If uh, Next slide. If... For some reason, the leaders, the priests, and the prophets, and the kings turn from God, then not only will they suffer, but the people underneath them will suffer, 
and indirectly, so will all of the earth. This is what, this is what, the, this is what God is suggesting here. We see throughout Scripture. So in other words, this isn't just bad news for, for the leader. This is bad news for his people. And this isn't just bad news for his people. This is bad news for everyone else. Nothing good is going to come from God's people getting off track. Now, this is a huge shift from the way that most religions think of the world. Here's how most religions uh, uh, think about the world, including Christianity, um, especially when it gets confused. We'll go to the next slide here. Um, it's really kind of simple. Um, we often think of this idea that uh, we have leaders and we have, uh, you know, Israel or we have the people of God, which we maybe say Christians or whatever religion you want to look at. And this is idea that if everyone else in the world wants to receive the benefits of that religion, they have to jump this barrier, right? So like I have to become a Christian if I want to receive the blessing. And so what often happens is we believe like, okay, we're blessed because we're in. Blood of Jesus, we're in. Everyone else judged. You don't want to be judged, get up on top, but otherwise you're screwed. This is the natural way to understand the world. It's not the biblical way. Much more healthier way to view the world is like this. Go to the next one. It's this idea that you have the people of God, even today, and there's still leaders that play a role very significantly different than the Old Testament, but there's still some leadership involved and community involved. But the idea is that all the good that God does in our community and in the church in general is meant to influence the world. And so here's what, I'm, here's what I really want you to hear. The world will be blessed through God's people. And what we're going to see in Micah is this. This is where it gets uncomfortable. If the world is in de deserving of judgment, it'll be judged through God's people. Or as 1 Peter says it like this, for the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household. Because when we who know God reject God, we can no longer be used by God to change the world. And the natural byproduct of that is ruin or what we might call judgment. One way to think of God's judgment, it's not the only way, is it's just a natural result of rejecting God. It's all those parts of the world that God has been separated from because of our choices. And when God isn't involved, it's bad. Not just for us, but for everyone else as well. Consider it like this. Point to a problem in America, just as one example. Point to a problem in America, whether it's um, prostitution, it's a major problem in our city, poverty, another major problem in our city, homelessness. Racism, still a problem. And if you point to a sin like that, a, a social sin that's a play in the city, I could probably point to a correlated sin in the American church. For example, prostitution. I don't know if you knew this, but typically pornography rentals go up when there's a Christian conference at a hotel. Consider poverty. You know, the largest churches in America will tell you that God wants you to be rich. The largest churches, like one of the most, the largest voices under the name of Christianity will tell you that God wants you to be rich. And we wonder why there's a property problem in America. Or racism. There is deep-rooted theology taught by pastors and seminary professors that built a case for why slavery was God's design for the world. This is not that long ago. And some still teach it. So you look at these problems and you, you realize that like, oh, there there, when the, the church gets it wrong, like it plays itself out in very subtle ways. 
So Micah's going to lay out what God's judgment is going to look like for them, what God is going to do to their leaders, symbolically Jerusalem and Samaria, and to the people of Israel. And it's going to be terrible because what they've done is terrible. So let's see what they say. Verse 3, it says this. It says, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down the slope. It's this idea of like a bulldozer just coming and leveling everything. I love this idea of like wax is just melting. He's like fire against wax and like water just rushing down the slopes. It's like a bulldozer. It's like this military up against a tiny little militia and they just, they just, just plow them through. God is coming from his dwelling place, and he's going to level everything. Why? Verse 5, he says this. He says, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Jacob being synonymous for the northern kingdom. He says, what's the problem with the northern kingdom? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Judah being synonymous for the southern kingdom. He says, what's the problem with the southern kingdom? Is it not Jerusalem? Once again, he says, your capitals are the problem. And not just your capitals, but the leadership and the decisions and the policies that happen in those capitals, which is not a new critique for anyone to make about any nation, by the way. You still hear this rhetoric, but this is coming from God. So he says, who's to blame? He says, the leadership, the kings and the prophets and the priests. So that's what he's saying. And here's what he says is going to happen. Next verse, he says, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones, the stones that make up their houses. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. I'll knock it all the way down to the foundations. There will only be foundations left. All of her idols will be broken into pieces and all her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all of her images. Doom. That's the sophisticated seminary word for what's being described. And I'm not even joking. I was reading a, a commentary on this, and they're like, doom. It was the word they used to describe this. It's very common in the prophets uh, for, 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 as they look forward to this destruction that God is going to bring because they've missed the point. Um, Micah doesn't cut corners. He doesn't build up any tension. He just jumps right in, and he says that God is going to destroy everything you're done for. Why? Why? What did they do to deserve this? Well, you see it here a little bit, at least in part. He's uh, mentioned uh, how God is going to destroy their idols, and he references temple gifts and even all of their images. Um, all of these are related to the kind of worship that didn't involve the God of Jacob. This, is, this was religious idolatry. They were cheating on God. You see, the people of Israel, they had two major sins. Two major sins that the prophets deal with over and over again. Micah's dealing with one of them right here. He's going to deal with the other one in, in passages to follow. But two major sins that all the prophets deal with, and it's this. The first one is they love to worship idols. They love to worship something other than the true God. Okay? The second sin is they, they always seem to neglect the poor. They, they failed to take care of the widow. They failed to take care of the orphan. They failed to take care of the stranger or the immigrant or the refugee. So they, they messed up in these two ways over and over again. You read the prophets, these are the images that will come up. If you get past the doom part, it'll be, like, it'll be about idols and it'll be about the poor, which makes sense. When Jesus came and he was asked, what are the great commandments? Many of you know the answer. 
He said to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. The people of Israel failed to love God when they worshiped idols. And the people of Israel failed to love their neighbor when they failed to take care of the poor, when they failed to take care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Because if you're turning your attention from God to an idol, then you're, you're failing to love God. And if you're not taking care of these most vulnerable, fragile people, then you're failing to love your neighbor. And Jesus says, if you want to sum up all of the law and all of the prophets, Jesus' Jesus's words, he says, if you want to sum it up, you can sum it up in those two things. Love God, love your neighbor, especially the vulnerable. Now, what makes their crimes particularly horrible is that not only did they fail to love God and neighbor, but they used their failure of loving their neighbor to finance their failure to love God. Look at this next verse. This is going to break your heart. He says, I will destroy all of this because she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will be again be used. He essentially is saying one of a couple things. Um, it could be a metaphor. I'm going to treat it more literally in this, this particular time, but it could also just be a metaphor. It was very common in pagan worship for women and sometimes men to be engaged in various prostitution in order to, um, as part of the worship. And what you see here is this almost this idea that Israel, uh, northern, southern kingdoms, they were, um, they were not only building these idols, usually out of very expensive things, and they were buying gifts and they were building up this idol worship. They were spending money on it, a lot of money. But the idea is that they were getting that money because they were forcing women to work in the streets and using that money. So they're, they're failing to love the most vulnerable in the society, these oftentimes women without husbands, failing to love them, and using that failure in the worst way possible to finance their failure to love God, to finance their idols. Both commandments, love God, love neighbor, were broken in this vicious, corrupt cycle. And the people who were doing this who were at least allowing this to happen, they were the leaders, the prophets and the priests and the kings. So there's all kinds of things wrong with this. So you wonder why God threatened to enter the world like a bulldozer and level everything. It's because God does not like that. There, there are things that are wrong in the world, and God says, no. Like I will, it's almost like God gives us free will to an extent, and then eventually God's like, I can't allow this to happen anymore. God does not want us to exploit people for any reason, and God cannot stand for us to reject Him for any reason, because we were created to be with God and to be with one another. And to reject God and to reject our neighbor is to reject the very reason we were created. So what we were made for. Some of you uh, might wonder uh, if old books like this are still relevant today. Uh, in fact, someone, uh, someone jokingly gave me a hard time. Micah, that's not relevant anymore. I think they are. Because nothing has changed. You know, friends, the two best things you can still do right now is to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself, especially the most vulnerable. It's the two if you're like, I don't know what to do with my life, start there every time. I'm serious. 
people oftentimes really struggle with, like, I don't know what to do with my life. If you just started with those two things, you'd be able to get pretty far. I know it doesn't tell you what job to have or where to live, but boy, you know, I'm not worried about those things. And I don't think God's worried about those things nearly as much as we are. God's really worried, are you loving your neighbor and are you loving God? And here's the thing, the two things we struggle with the most is still those two things. We still worship idols. They just typically are, you know, they come with HD screens or they come in the form of football teams. They come in form of luxury items or they come in the form of our jobs or our, or, or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our, or our own image or our status in this world. We still place our focus and our attention on things other than God and we still pay for those things. Like we're putting money into things that are pulling us from God. Sometimes large amounts of money, which makes them an idol. And I would suggest that those idols in our lives will indirectly impact the way we love our neighbors, even those closest to us. So Alyssa recently had, uh, was a little bit of a prophet in my life, um, which made her really well liked in our house for a while, <laughs> as prophets are. Uh, she, uh, she noticed something that was off in my life and called me out on it. And uh, like all of you uh, would probably feel the same way, you know, I was just really blessed to have that called out in my life and uh, took it with grace and definitely didn't challenge it at all. But she, uh, she told me that I, I, I really just something that I needed to pay t- less attention to so that I could pay more attention to God and to my neighbor, specifically those neighbors that live in our house, um, my wife and son. She said, I'm on my, I'm on my, I'm on my phone too much. And she specifically mentioned that I was on Facebook too much and uh, really kind of suggested that I should give up Facebook. So I did. I gave it up. It was a little hard at first. Absolutely love it. I get on there occasionally to check some groups that I'm in and and make sure no one's messaging me, but I've I've given it up. Uh, And it really has been great. She was absolutely right. But after a couple of weeks of giving up Facebook, um, she became the prophet in my life again and in our family. And she had the audacity to tell me that I'm on my phone too much. And I'm like, I'm over here thinking, I gave up Facebook. Like, what do you want from me? I mean, I, granted, I just went to Instagram and Twitter and to a bunch of games. <laughs> but I'm not on Facebook. Like, I'm making progress here, right? Uh, it was a hard message. Uh, I definitely didn't argue with her at all about it. And I said, I'm so glad you told me that um, uh, because she was right. Now, the only thing worse than someone telling you you're doing something wrong is when they tell you you're doing something wrong and they're right. Oh, and she was right. And so I'm working on that. Um, I'm working on my phone. I haven't conquered it yet. Um, uh, honestly, the best way to conquer it would be getting rid of it entirely, but I use it a lot for work, so I'm really wrestling with that. Maybe I will get rid of it. I've really wrestled with maybe just getting rid of it entirely, and then no one can get a hold of me, um, which I wouldn't necessarily complain about, but I'm trying. And, and, and more than really just even giving it up right now, I've begun to recognize how it influences my relationships um, with God and with other people. I know that it's made me pay attention to people a lot less. I, I know that it's probably produced some ADD in my life. I know that I end up in conversations. In fact, I, I just found out about one today from like a year ago, not quite a year, where I was in a conversation with someone and I walked away mid-conversation. Um, and I, I do that. I guess I do that a lot. You've probably experienced that. I'm sure it's probably in part because of my addiction to my phone. And so I'm beginning to recognize this. I'm beginning to see this. I'm I'm being honest with you. Um, But here's the thing. Idols, things that steal our attention away from what matters, I don't know what they are in your life. It might be a phone. It probably is for a lot of you. But they steal our attention, and they, they, they influence the way in which we can love God and love our neighbor. We get wrapped up in them, and we, we, we can't fully love other people. 
And I'm telling you that because it's, it's not just about our families or our roommates or our actual neighbors. God wants us to go further. He wants us to love them, our, our, our immediate circle of people, but he wants us to love those on the other side of town. He says, they're your neighbors too, especially the ones who are suffering or marginalized or vulnerable. And so if we can't figure out how to just even pay attention to the people in front of us, how are we ever going to love the people on the other side of town? And if we don't, how are we any better than the people of Israel during the time of Micah? We're holding a week of service because we know that we tend to struggle to love our neighbors. We especially tend to struggle to love the neighbors we never see. And if we aren't intentional about it, if we don't put energy behind it and we don't put money behind it, friends, we won't do it. I won't do it. It's just not going to happen. I'm just going to go on. My, I, got other, I got better things to do with my time. It just, it will not happen unless we make it a thing and we put some intention. So that's, that's really the heart of this, this, this week of service is say, no, we're going to make it happen even just a week, which hopefully is just an introduction to doing it long term, but we're going to make it happen. Because that, and friends, this is how it's always been. There's nothing new. You don't have to feel overwhelmingly guilty about it or feel bad. This is, this is what it means to be human. This is how it's always been from the very time of the prophets. We fail to love God and we fail to love our neighbor. God loves us anyways. Sprinkle just a little bit of hope in there. <laughs> we'll get to that later in, this, uh, later in this speech, by the way. But here's the worst part. Sometimes we use our failure to love our neighbor to finance our idols, don't we? Think about it like this. Pull out your week of service. You should have got one. I want to ask yourself, what would you have to give up in your life? What um, idol or addiction or preoccupants that you have in your life, what would you have to shift around in your life in order to volunteer at a place like this? Maybe not even the week of service. Like, that's just a metaphor, right? Like, if you can't volunteer the week of service, I'm not going to think less of you. But just think through, what would you have to change in your life to show up and to make a difference amongst the most vulnerable? Every single one of our projects does some sort of work with our, our city's most vulnerable. What would you have to give up? But think about it like this. What would you have to sacrifice? What would you have to give up? How would you have to shift your life around in order to be at church every week? To create space in your life to worship God. There's lots of ways to worship God. I'm not, I'm not doing a whole series on worship right now. I understand that you can go all kinds of wonderful, great ways. But what would it look like to really sacrifice in your life to be a part of a community that's worshiping God all together at one time? What would you have to change in your life, outside of even the week of service, to make it to small group, to be a part of a community where you can be in relationship with other people, where you can love those neighbors who are closest to you? What would you have to change your life? What would you have to do less of? What would you have to give up? I want to challenge you as we bring to a close. We do have opportunities for you to serve. Um, many of you have signed up already. Um, if you haven't and you hope to, today is the day. We have some great opportunities the week of service. I would challenge you. You can do it as a small group. You can do it as a family. And we try to create spaces and opportunities across the board. And if you look at this week of service and you say, I'm not available for any of these open slots, I will create a new slot for you. That's my uh, Emily, who's organizing it, isn't here, so she can't argue with me. <laughs> we will figure it out, if not this week in, in, in a while.
So after giving up my phone a little bit and, and then forcing Finn to watch less television, um, which is our, uh, our unhealthy default uh, parenting practice when we're tired, um, I began to see this really drastic change in our home life. Um, uh, we began to talk again. Uh, we even began to play together. In fact, at one point, I put a record on, and I can't remember who started, but, uh, but one of us started to dance. And soon, all three of us were dancing. And if you haven't seen Finn dance, it's worth the price of admission. And we're all dancing in this room together as a family. What idol do you need to give up so you can dance again? Dancing actually is this really beautiful prophetic picture of what it looks like when all things are right. The prophets, I don't know if Micah deals with it, but other prophets will talk about that you'll know things are good when children dance in the streets, when there's dancing, this carefree willingness to just let go and you don't, all these chains we've let go. We're going to talk about that um, more. For now, let's pray. God, we come before you and um, we thank you for the ways in which uh, you work in our lives. Lord, as we begin to dig into your word, especially and specifically the um, book of, uh, of Micah, that you would um, begin to soften our hearts, that uh, in the midst of sometimes very challenging words, you would give us a sense of hope. Um, Lord, we're so grateful that we live in a, a time of grace where it doesn't matter how much we mess up, you're willing to love us and forgive us. Um, that even when we uh, fail to be your people. Lord, help us to um, live into what it means. Help us to trust that when we engage in what it means to be a church, that we know that it's making a, an actual difference in the world around us in ways that we sometimes can't even notice. Help us to be faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to ask you guys to stand and join us in worship one more time. Um, like Joe said, take those idols, put them in your pocket, stand, um, sing with us if that's what Jesus is calling you to do, dance with us if that's what Jesus is calling you to do, um, but we want you to participate with us in whatever way God is telling you to do so. Um, enjoy the rest of your weeks, and we'll see you next week.